But I trust uh, you really. I, I trust you really did have a fun time. Whatever you did celebrating over the last couple of days, um, the Queen's Jubilee. For me, it was wonderful just watching last night um, to really be part of someone's celebration of a life that has been well lived. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I've, she's been an amazing lady of absolute faith and faithfulness and duty, words that we don't like so much anymore. <laughs> duty and uh, living for others and giving herself in a life of service. So really amazing to celebrate and if you didn't get to see the concert, I do want to encourage you, it's, it's worth it, just as a spectacle. And like I said, my favorites were Alicia Keys and uh, Bocelli, undoubtedly, did amazingly well. So, uh, yeah, if you didn't get to see it, go and catch up online. Um, what I want to speak to you about this morning is uh, that portion that we've reached in 1 Peter 4. If you're visiting, we're looking at a, a series about living well in difficult times, and we've now reached 1 Peter 4 where Peter makes some direct comments about the end times. And um, I always find the end times fascinating because there can be various responses in, in Christian circles. And uh, I started by saying today's the, the day of Pentecost. Do you remember that? In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up after the Holy Spirit is poured out and everybody starts speaking in strange languages and they can recognize people's where they've come from by the language they're speaking. And the Jews mock them and say, these people are drunk. And Peter says, no, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. These people are not drunk. What has happened is the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, and they are filled with the Spirit. And that's what is you're seeing demonstrated right now. And he says these words. He says, this is to fulfill what the prophet Joel said. In the last days, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Peter said that 2,000 years ago. Yep. 2,000 years ago, he said, in, these are the last days we are living in, and we are still living in the last days, and I'd like to look at this portion with you in Peter as Peter makes some comments about how we can learn to live well in the last days in which we are part of. Now, I want to say why I said it's interesting is because some Christians get a bit weird when you speak about the last days. Um, last week, uh, Clive said that... Um, Sometimes Christians can be represented as being a bit odd in the media. Um, and I want to say, unfortunately, it's true that there are some Christians that are weird and odd when you think about and when they talk about the end times. Uh, I've been living long enough now and been involved in ministry uh, long enough to remember a number of prophecies over the last 30 years that I've been involved in church life about the end of the world. Some guy from... Kansas or Arkansas or Omaha, wherever, or South Africa, says that he's discovered something in the Bible that no one else has ever seen. And it has to do with the time and the date that Jesus is going to come back. And on the 5th of September, 1986 or 1995 or whatever it was, Jesus is coming back soon. Have you, have you had any of these experiences in your Christian life? Yes, I have. And YK2, what was it, YK2000, remember? They said all the planes were going to fall out of the sky at the turn of the century, and we were all to fear the end was near. So we can, unfortunately, Christians can get a little bit weird, uh, and this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, only the Father knows, not even I know when the end will come. 
and that has always been a guiding light to, in, 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 to me in my life. So I'm encouraging every one of you this morning that if you hear anyone claiming a date that they've worked out from the Bible or say that, saying that you must go and live in a bunker somewhere wearing a tinfoil hat to avoid the coming apocalypse that's about to be unleashed on the earth, they are always wrong. Okay? Always. You can be sure about that. So just relax and live your life and live by the power of the Spirit and not by the power of weird people trying to put stuff on you, all right? So this is what, as an introduction, just like to read a couple of things that Jesus said about the end times, about living in the end. Matthew 24, verse 3, says this, and I can see this, you know, the when I was reading it this week, it's like the disciples, they gather around Jesus and they're kind of like saying to Jesus, give us the inside track, you know. Let us know what no one else knows. I'm sure you know about the end. And they're kind of trying to get the inside track with Jesus. And listen to what he says. He says, uh, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. Like in hushed tones. Jesus, please tell us. Please tell us. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? The end of the world. What will be the sign of your second coming? The end of the age. And Jesus kind of avoids it and he just says, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Guys, not alarmed, don't worry. When there are wars and rumors of wars, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So Jesus says, even when you see that stuff, it's, the end is not yet here. It's still to come. And then he carries on and says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Second thing Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 13 uh, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all, all nations. And then the end will come. Clue for us is perhaps the gospel has to be preached to every nation of the world before the end can possibly come. All right, that's what Jesus said. Lastly, Matthew 24, I've said it already, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, says Jesus, but my words will never pass away. But about that day, that final day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Jesus says. And it will be as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus makes it plain. Right? We don't have to worry, we don't have to fret, we don't have to get anxious about the end. Only the Father knows, and He alone knows when the end will be. And then Paul says this in 1 Timothy, which I alluded to a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4. He says this, The Spirit clearly says, In the last times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything that God created is good. 
Everything that God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the word of the Lord and by prayer. And I didn't notice this before, verse 6, but I noticed it this week. It says this, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I thought, ah, oh, that's what I've got to do as a preacher. I've got to point these things out to people. Then I'm being a good, faithful minister of, of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus. And, and it carries on. It says, you will be nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teachings that you have followed. That gives you a little context of what Paul said, what Jesus said. And now I want to just land on our portion this morning. This is what Peter says. You can bring it up, please, if you can. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near, says Peter. The end of all things is near. Therefore, remember what I said to you last week? Whenever you see a therefore, what is it connecting? It's connecting two thoughts or two ideas or something that we need to think about together. What's the first statement Peter has made? The end of all things is near. It's at hand. Therefore, we've got to do something. If the end of all things is near, what do we do? Be alert. Be of sober mind so that you might pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the, we, the, the end of all things is near. The end of the world is coming. What should we do, Jesus? Should we build a bunker somewhere? Should we collect baked beans? Should we separate ourselves from everyone else? Buy a rifle and hem ourselves in because the end of all things is near. Wow. What does the Bible say? Exactly the opposite. <laughs> Four little things I want to point out to you this morning. The first thing, it's an interesting statement, isn't it? The end of all things is near. In fact, I've tried to say it to you already, Acts chapter 2. The Bible uses the language of the end of all things repeatedly. In the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even comes as Messiah, the Bible is already speaking about the end of all things. It's already speaking about the end times. It's already speaking about that final day when Messiah will come and when Jesus will come. Hundreds of years before. What does the Bible do? Why does it use that language? And what does it mean when it says the end of all things? Well, I want to say respectfully this morning that the end of all things never refers to a particular date in the calendar. All right? That's where we get into problems. Because that date in the calendar, the end of all things, might still be many, many hundreds of years in the future. I've already said when Peter speaks these words, it's 2,000 years ago, and we're still living in the end times, aren't we? So it's quite possible that the end of all things is still many, many years away. And we've just I've said to you that when people start to put particular dates to things, they get into particular problems. I'll put it to you that the end of all things refers to this fact that God is always ready to break into your situation of crisis and bring it to an end right now. That's what he's saying. 
Whatever you're facing right now, your particular crisis, your particular moment of crisis, which is a foretaste of what the end is going to be. It's a foreshadow of the final end. God promises you, I can bring an end to all things now in your life. I can break in by the power of my spirit, and I can bring an end to it right now. That's what he's saying. That's what the Bible means when it speaks about the end of things. That's predominantly what it's speaking about. And so, for example, I want to give you another scripture. Ezekiel 7, verse 1 says, Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Jesus, right? One of the great prophets. He says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel all those hundreds of years ago. The end, the end is upon you. On the four corners of the land, the end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger upon you. That's what is prophesied by Ezekiel. All those hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so basically, we see that from the scripture, the end is always near. It's always near. God is always near right now to end our suffering, to end our difficulty right now in the world as we wait for that final day when Jesus will come back. Do you get what I'm saying? What a beautiful thing. What a great comfort to all of us. So remember this letter is trying to help people live well when there's th times are difficult, when, when times are full of suffering. Peter's trying to help his friends to live well. So in other words, he's saying, when you're going through a time of suffering or difficulty, know this. That God is always near, that God, God is always at hand, that God can always break in at any time and bring that situation to an end and release you from it. What an amazing thing. Secondly, Peter says, because of that fact, you need to pray. Isn't that right? He doesn't say you run around in a mad panic. He says, no, you pray. And he says this. Be, of, uh, be alert and be of a sober mind so that you can pray. So what is he saying? He's saying that we need to use our judgment. We need to be those that think clearly. We need to be calm. We need to stay focused. Why? Because we want to pray effectively. <laughs> How can you pray effectively when you're not calm, when you're running around in a mad pan panic like everybody else? No, no. Peter says, no, no, by the Spirit, we have to think calmly, remain calm, keep your head in all situations, Paul says to Timothy. When everyone is rushing around panicking, it's not a time for you to do that. If you have the love of Christ, you have the power of the Spirit, be sober-minded, be thoughtful, be self-controlled, be disciplined, and evaluate every situation maturely and correctly, be, be remaining calm, cool, and collected under pressure, so that you can pray. That you know what to say. That you know what to ask God for. So that you can pray. In other words, how does this fit with walking by the Spirit? Well, I absolutely believe as well that we must walk by the Spirit. When God says something to us, we must obey. And we must hear the voice of the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. What it also means, though, is that Christians, we don't act entirely on our impulse. Yes? You don't just... Oh, the voice of God has told me this, therefore I can do this. And the voice of God has told me that, and therefore I rush and do that. No, no, that's not what Peter's saying, a much deeper thing. 
He's saying, as you hear the voice of the Spirit, as you hear God speaking to you, what do you do? You are alert. You are watchful. You are sober-minded. You're asking the Holy Spirit for the strategy that He has for your life that is orderly. It's methodical. It's deliberate. It's deliberately hearing the voice of the Spirit, measuring it against the Word of God, and then acting. That's what it is. That's why we walk by the Spirit and we are sober-minded. So Peter's saying, in the, as we try and live well in these, these last times, be thoughtful about what you do and think before you act, even when you feel like the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. Be thoughtful. Be sober-minded. Yes? Thirdly, he says, we do that so that we can pray. Now, I just want to speak about prayer. How long have I been going? Okay, oh, five minutes. Uh, it's vital that we pray, right? And it's particularly vital that we pray if we are going through difficult times. And so if we're in the middle of trials, if we're in the middle of persecution, the thing that's going to help us most to keep a cool head that helps us to live free of bitterness and unforgiveness is that we are those that pray. So what do I mean by that? Well, prayer is our greatest asset because through prayer, we join our weakness to God's strength, don't we? And we exchange our ignorance for His wisdom. That's what happens when we pray. And in, in, in essence, prayer is knowing God. So when I say prayer, I'm not talking about the act of saying prayers. Can I just make that distinction? I'm not talking about the act of saying prayers. What, depending on, on what tradition you come from, there are traditions in terms of how people pray. In an Anglo-Catholic tradition, the pattern is formal, recited prayer. In, Pentecost, in Pentecostal traditions, there's a reverting to speaking in tongues when people pray. Uh, people use uh, rosaries to help them to pray. It's a formal kind of tradition. I'm not speaking about that. What I'm speaking about, that whatever your, whatever your tr tradition might be, I'm speaking about talking to God as a father and talking to God as a friend. And this is what I mean. It means that we turn our minds towards Him and become consciously aware in our lives of His presence, that He's with us, consciously. And as we do that, we, are, we start to give ourselves in prayer, which really means we give ourselves in worship to Him. And we joyfully express who God is and what we know Him to be like. That's what we start when we pray. We joyfully express our love for God, who He is, what we know Him to be like. He's a good Father. He's kind. He's generous. He's forgiving. He's just. He's full of, full of compassion. All the things we know about God, we begin in our prayer life just to say, God, thank you for who you are. Secondly, we express our thankfulness and gratitude, not only that God has uh, taken care of us, but right now He's taking care of us. Yes, we, we, we sang, sang out about this morning. His faithfulness in the past, but yeah, He's faithful to us right now. And he, day by day, he's, he, we thank Him for what He's done for us recently, what He's done for us today and yesterday. Thanksgiving. Thirdly, we confess our sin. What does that mean? It means we just admit ourselves to ourselves what God has said to us about our sin and that it's washed away. And we confess our sin as we've hurt God and hurt other people. But we remind ourselves, too, that our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And fourthly, we re represent our request to Him. We ask Him for what we need to grow in godliness. And lastly, 
we intercede for others. We present our requests on behalf of others to him. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about, prayer. I say that's what it is, to worship God, to pray Him, to pray to him uh, through our worship. Worship is adoring his character and his greatness. Thanksgiving is appreciating his generosity and his goodness. Confession is admitting our accountability to God and repenting of our sinfulness. Intercession is appealing to God on behalf of others and uh, presenting our requests for them. And petition is asking for mercy. So in all times, Peter's saying, in all times, you're going to need to pray and be alert be thoughtful, be sober-minded, be led by the Spirit so you can pray effectively. What else does he say? Thirdly, man, I love how the Bible is, it's just like takes all sorts of thoughts. And in all of that, Peter could have said about living in the end times and living well and enduring suffering, suffering well. Of all the things he could have said, he summarizes into a tiny little phrase that says so much. Love each other deeply. You, you, Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? Love the Lord your God with all your f- soul, your, your mind, your strength, and love each other as Christ has loved you. And Peter says the same thing. You want to live well in the end times? Love people deeply. That's what he says. Love each other deeply. That's how you're going to get through difficult times well. And the reason, he says, we should love each other deeply is because love covers over sin. Isn't that a beautiful thing? A multitude of sin. So what does he mean by that? Does it mean that God is merciful to those who he's showing love? Yeah, it certainly does mean that. Does it mean that love doesn't expose other people's weaknesses and chooses to overlook things without bringing disgrace to that person? Of course, it means that as well. Absolutely. That's what love does. But it means all of those things, and it means more. And for me, summary, what, what love does, it brings down the mercy of God into our lives. Have you noticed that? The love of God brings mercy to you. And what do you know you need when you've fouled up in your life, when you've had an argument that you shouldn't have had with your spouse or with your kids or you've just blown it again at work? What do you need most in your life when you cry out for the love of God? What are you actually asking for? God, I need your mercy. I'm so sorry. I fouled up again. Help me. And the love of God releases the mercy of God into our lives. It doesn't expose us. It doesn't embarrass us. Love works at removing the barriers between us and God and us between uh, us as people. That's what love does. And I love um, some of the older translations use this word fervent. I am finishing. Fervent. Love each other fervently. What does that mean? Well, it has an implication in the, in the Greek of an athlete, which I didn't know. An athlete, when they're about to cross the line, they, they stretch to break the line, don't they? Or when someone in the high jump, when they jump over the bar, they are absolutely stretching every sinew of their body so they can get over the bar. Is that right? So when the writer says, love each other fervently, what he is saying is that this kind of love is going to require to stretch you You're going to be a little bit uncomfortable with this kind of love because you're going to have to exert yourself beyond what is normally done to break the tape and to win the prize. It 
requires sacrifice to love like this. It requires that you anticipate other people's needs, that you make sacrifices so they can enjoy something of the love of Christ. What did Jesus say? John 13. You know it well? And your commandments I give to you. That's you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Last little thing I want to say. Do you notice that after this, this thing that Peter says we must fervently love each other deeply from the heart because it covers a multitude of sins and it's the mercy of God comes down to heaven into our lives. What else does he say? He says the practical encouragement of that kind of love is that you are hospitable. <laughs> it's so simple. How do you want to live well in the end times? You love people and you invite them into your home and you love them. And notice Peter doesn't say this. He doesn't say you ask them if you know them well. He doesn't say if you ask them if you like them or you don't. He doesn't ask, them, ask you to say, are you from the same social class as I am? Are you from the same nation as me? <laughs> he doesn't say any of that. What does he say? He says, love people and show them hospitality. And he says, do that without groaning. Or complaining, or complaining. And I found this in my life. There's a cost attached to hospitality because someone else is in your space eating your food, sitting on your chair. <laughs> and notice I say your because every time we think like this, it's my house, my food, my chair, my space. We're not quite thinking biblically because basically we need to be thinking we are not the owners of these blessings that God has lavished on our lives, we are the stewards. And I steward the space that I have, the money that I have. Perhaps that's why God has given you a fine house with a spare bedroom and a second car. So you can be a blessing to other people. It's a challenge, isn't it? But this is how we're called to live. And this is how we're called to live well by the power of the Spirit. So living well. It's not being about being caught about up in some conspiracy theory and understanding the signs of the times. All right? It's not about that. It's not about trying to predict the end of the world or when Jesus is going to come back. Peter makes it plain. Living well in the end times is about being a thoughtful, careful, prayerful person who's deeply motivated by the knowledge that Jesus could come back at any time. And because of that, it's about becoming a community of love where people deeply love each other in a way that doesn't expose people, that covers over sin in their lives, that helps them to overcome that. And above all, it's about showing hospitality to all of God's people without grumbling. That's how we live well. <laughs> so simple, isn't it? That's how we live well. That's what the power of the Spirit wants us to do. So my friends, I hope you will join with me in saying, Jesus, to live like that, I need your help. Because there's times that I get grumpy and I don't want people in my home. <laughs> and I, I don't particularly want to go sometimes to Cambodia. I said to Helen this last time, I really didn't want to go to Cambodia. 
I'll tell you why. Because I know what it, I've done it so many times now. I know what 15 hours in a plane feels like. And I know what it feels like to get out on the other side and not be able to breathe. And for my feet to swell up because it's so hot. And for three days just to feel like I can't function. <laughs> I know what that's like. And it costs to show love. It costs to be hospitable. It costs someone, a number of wonderful people this morning, who came and set up that place so we can sit there and enjoy things and everything looks beautiful. It costs people to do that. <laughs> Why? It's love. God wants us to love and live well. I want to pray for you. And are you guys going to sing one more song? No? It doesn't matter. Goodness of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we just pray for your spirit. We, we ask that you'd help us. We ask that you'd help us to hear your voice, to be prayerful, to be thoughtful, to respond well when your voice tells us, my son, my daughter, this is the way I want you to go in. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't live by impulse, we wouldn't live flying by the seat of our pants, we would live full of faith, we would, we would know your voice, and we would be thoughtful and careful and prayerful above all things, that you would help us to love each other deeply in this church community and out of this church community into our friends and our family, that we'd lo love each other deeply, and that we would be hospitable, and that you would learn, teach us by the power of your Spirit to live well. That we wouldn't fret, we wouldn't get anxious, we wouldn't panic where we see things around us happening in the world. You said these things are going to come, but they're just the birth pains, and the end is still a way off. Lord, help us to live well while we wait for that final day. Jesus, we ask, on this Pentecost day, we pray that you'd pour out your Spirit upon us to enable us to live well from the inside out. We can't do it ourselves, and we ask you to help us. As we stand and worship now, Lord, I pray that you'd seal these things in our heart by the power of your Holy Spirit as a good God, a good Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Everyone says, Amen.